0: Hey, it's Marcel. Let me get honest with you for a minute. We've reached a time in history when building up strong leaders truly matters if you want to grow your business. But managing through fear, command and control, and do as I say ways of managing is not going to get you there. So, what will? In my research, I found that the most effective leadership boils down to six key behaviors. They are behaviors that when filtered down to every management level, can create high performance in your teams and build a great work culture. By the way, this is the new topic that I speak on at company events and conferences and virtual stages all over the world. It's great for keynotes, webinars, half-day or full-day workshops, and leadership retreats. So if you wanna learn a clear and practical framework To help design the best work environment for your people to flourish, this is the way to go, and I can show you how to do it. To book me for your event, visit my website, Marcelschwantis.com, and click on Speaking. Enjoy the show. The future of work isn't about shareholder value, technology, metrics, or automation. It's about being human and putting people first through actionable love. Welcome to the Love and Action podcast, where we hold deep conversations with extraordinary people to help you grow as a leader and expand your business. Here's your host, Marcel Schwantes. Hey, thanks for choosing to spend time with us today. We're grateful that you are here. I know there are a lot of podcasts out there and we appreciate you dropping in today. And if you like what you hear, we would be even more grateful if you could share this episode on social media, because doing so will help us get to our goal of spreading the love and action message globally to the point of 1 million downloads. That's what we're striving for. We, we got our, our, our target goals, so hopefully you can help us in that process just by sharing it with a friend. All right, so today we're gonna get real, okay? I mean, well, we do that on every, every episode, right? So you're going, Marcel, getting real? Come on. It's, it's like it's a given, right? But we're going to talk about some things and, and have a conversation with, with some hard topics. I want to explore imposter syndrome with you. I mean, I'm guilty, like the best of them, and it's more common than we think, especially among leaders and high performers. I know there are many of you that kind of fit that description, i also want to talk about and explore the topic of perfectionism with you okay and also self-doubt and maybe we're gonna talk about burnout and and hustle culture okay i said these are hard things but let's be human here every single one of us has probably experienced some of these things i mean let's be honest right But we need to know uh, how to overcome them so we don't get sucked into these bad habits and, and negative mindsets that hold us back from being our best selves. So to have this conversation, I need an expert. I'm bringing in the wonderful Christina Mandlachiani to the conversation. She just wrote a fantastic new book called Becoming Flossom: The Key to Living an Imperfectly Authentic Life. And Christina, she reveals the secret to overcoming perfectionism, and all those self-doubt lies in our heads, right? So we, we can embrace every aspect of ourselves, imperfections and all. Because last time I checked, nobody's perfect. So with her help today, we will hopefully help guide you guys forward to you know finding your own truth and, and transform you from the perfect you to the real you. So, Christina Mandlakiani is the co-founder of Mind Valley, the world's most powerful life transformation platform with an ever-growing 20 million-strong following. She's an entrepreneur. She is a, a writer, an international speaker, an artist, and a philanthropist, based in Estonia. Christina's content has touched the lives of tens of thousands of students and, and people and business owners by providing wisdom, life hacks, and healthy habit-building formulas inspired by her 20 years in the personal growth industry. I am so stoked that she's here because we've been kind of ha- trying to hound her down because she's a busy gal. She travels all over the place, and she finally is here, and she now joins us. Christina, welcome to the Love and Action podcast.
1: Thank you, Marcel, for your very kind words, and I'm so glad that I made it.
0: <laughs> <laughs> we start the show with this question like we do with every guest you ready yes what's your story (laughs)
1: <laughs> I'm so glad you actually uh, warned me what kind of story you want me to tell. Because, you know, being a speaker and a writer and a mother, I can tell a lot of stories. But uh, the most relevant probably for this podcast is that, yes, I'm Christina Mandlakiani. I was born in a country which does not exist anymore yeah. uh, in Soviet Union. I was a teenager when that country collapsed. And that actually probably gave quite a lot of background to what I was doing and how I was perceiving the world. In fact, you know, I had a very interesting episode yesterday, I had some relatives come over to visit me and, you know, Estonia was uh, annexed to Soviet Union during around the World War II, so 1940s, and a whole lot of Estonians had escaped at that time. And um, the biggest diaspora of Estonians is in Canada. So uh, this third generation Estonian Canadian uh, came to visit me and I realized that I explained so many things with, you know, my uh, Soviet past. And I was thinking uh, later about that because sometimes you might think, think that your past or your story uh, is the trauma that you carry along and that this is something that you have to move on and, and leave behind. But in my case, I think it just, it just is. It's just huh. is part, of, part of the story. And sometimes I said funny things like, you know, when I moved to live in Norway, then my parents couldn't afford supporting me because the economic disparity was so huge between, you know, freshly uh, independent Estonia and, and uh, old European country and 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 things like that. but but I'm actually grateful to that past. but of course, Soviet Union collapsed. thank God. <laughs> I uh, finished my education in uh, in the new world, so I understand the West well. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, I married at the age of twenty five because I'm the older generation we married earlier. <laughs> yeah. and then I moved to New York, I had lived in six countries uh, throughout my life um in Asia, us, Europe, and and yes, yeah, so at some point I started um, co-founded a business mind valley so that's in a nutshell let's dive
0: into uh becoming flossom. and here is the book cover for those of you watching on youtube um so you know there's a the title has a kind of a play on words right and and i think that's going to be the theme of our conversation but why flossom?
1: um you know, the word, it's similar to my own life story. My career and my purpose and my mission found me. So the word found me. Uh, being a proper writer, I knew one very simple rule. You first write a book and then you come up with a name for the book. You don't do the reverse. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, the working titles were anything but uh, flawsome. The, the word wasn't there. In fact, uh, the word came so late in the book that we had to uh, adjust the manuscript a little bit so that there is at least uh, the word words. Uh, but there is no chapter called "Flossum," <laughs> naturally. Uh, so uh, when the book was ready, I was writing a book about finding your path back to you, because uh, at some point, I realized that I had lost myself in my life. Uh, and I mm. was uh, writing a book about how do you find your path back to yourself? Uh, and that was literally what the book is about. And then when the book was ready, I fo- I came across this word on um, somewhere on the internet. And um, I just loved it, because when I saw it, I knew that was what my book was about yeah and i think that's also beautiful it don't it doesn't have to be the other way around
0: right right so speaking of beautiful i love the the, the you start the book right from the from the get-go talking about authenticity and oh you no know, we all struggle with being authentic some of us don't even know what, what that means anymore because it's just a, such a, a catch-all buzz term right and and uh, you know others will take advantage of of being authentic by speaking their minds and telling people whatever comes up with them, you know, and they don't realize that they're offending and being a complete, a- well, a jerk, excuse me, I'm, I don't want my podcast oh, okay. to have the asterisk <laughs> with, the, with the language. Anyway, so how would you define authenticity in this case?
1: You know, I have also come across such situations. I was once interviewing a person who is one of the authorities in authenticity and um, we had a very rocky start and actually it never it never evened out because sometimes people are just too blunt and in your face. But I think that comes from us. Uh, uh, from us humanity being in a rush so we're in a rush to the point where we don't want we, we don't bother to look into the essence of phenomenon so if you think about authenticity authenticity in essence means being true to yourself mm. and i like to uh draw attention to the fact that this is about your relationship with yourself it has nothing to do with the world so if you were to- talk about a force, like a physical force, and then authenticity is the force without direction because it's your relationship with yourself. The moment you use authenticity in your relationship with the outside world, you give this force a direction. It becomes a vector and it loses its very its intrinsic nature. It stops being about you and yourself. Yeah. Now, um, so this is one side of it, being true to yourself. Does authenticity mean uh, speaking your mind all the time? Or being so-called honest, again, honesty yeah, Honesty is an intention, but speaking the truth, right? right. Uh, does that mean, do you even know the truth? What is the truth? Uh, you can be honest without knowing the truth, <laughs> or attempt to be honest without knowing the truth. Uh, now, being rude, being blunt, being straightforward has nothing to do with authenticity. It has to do with your behavior. Behavior and your interaction with the outside world. You can be honest, you can, uh, you know, you can have the value, the highest value of truth and justice and still choose to be polite. Yeah. and that doesn't make you any less authentic so let's not as a society let's not mix up the different the different um concepts and let's not uh, call bluntness and straightforwardness authenticity it may be authentic for some people and in that case they're very unpleasant per, uh, people <laughs> by yeah. nature right but for some people you know I'm a very private person. And for me, sharing sharing my personal stories is maybe is not an authentic thing, but it might be something that one of my values requires. And then I will do things which are not intrinsically natural to me. Yeah. If you, as a hermit, as a as an Estonian, I live so far in the north. It's already winter here. <laughs> I like if I had my choice, I would go to the forests and live with my sheep and my Highland cows, and I'd be super happy. Yeah.
0: This is such a fascinating topic. I mean, we we've talked about authenticity here before, but I, I wanna I want to play devil's advocate. So can someone be authentic by thinking that they're showing up with their best selves and not realizing that they're manipulative, taking advantage of others, and just not 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 serving to the best of their capacity because it's more about them than mm-hmm. others. And so by having this mindset of um, this, it's almost like a scarcity mindset of of taking, 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 and not giving, giving enough, you think that you're being authentic, right? Because it only serves your purpose. So I'm being authentic to me, but yeah. at, at, at the expense of other people. So is this someone that operates that way? Are they authentic?
1: <laughs> well, um, you know a short answer would be who am i to judge uh, other people's authenticity because if it is a relationship your relationship with yourself you're the only person who can uh, say is it authentic to you or not and if a person is selfish and greedy then maybe this kind of behavior is authentic to them because mm. it corresponds to their true nature and their values now uh, a more correct answer would be that like in any in any science we have to start with definitions so let's start with definitions. Uh the what what does authenticity mean? It means being true to yourself, but being true to yourself also means, or at least implies, that you know who you are. And that's where the problem begins, because a lot of us live in a delusion. Uh and uh the nature of delusion is that we are never aware that we are delusional, because that's the nature of delusion. <laughs> You're not aware of that. But if you if you have any interest in psychology, uh then um the ways our brains... I just finished a book, an introductory book on the brain. I really enjoyed it. But it also uh, it also opened up so many opportunities <laughs> to me to see how our brain likes to trick us, and both practically and actually in more uh, refined terms. You know, our, our perception of the world, our perception of ourselves, the way we interact with people. So for us to... Uh, first of all, I would abstain from judging other people because that's their journey and that's their life and that's their choice. Would I want to be around such people? No, if they tell me, but that's me just being authentic, I might not choose to argue with them. But my conclusion would have been no, that just means you being selfish.
0: Mm. Very wise word. So at what point in your journey, did you realize, I don't really know who I am, I'm living a lie?
1: Well I didn't live a hundred percent lie that's the thing okay. uh we uh, we are sometimes uh, a little black and white you are uh, you know you either lie or you're honest you either uh, say the truth or you're like saying the lies <laughs> uh you, so unfortunately, almost nothing is um Almost nothing is absolute, although here I will contradict myself. I think, uh, authenticity is to a degree absolute. I mean, once you know who you are, it's really hard not to be authentic. But, um, but when I, I was 40 years old when, um, when I started feeling that I'm discontent with what I have created, so it it started with little signs. And the first one was, uh, I started the book with that. So if you get the book, you'll, you'll recognize the story. I came into the office and a friend of mine said, I've missed you. And I just blurted out, oh, I missed me too. And when I said that, it was like, literally, I stopped in my tracks because I thought, did I just say I missed me too? What do I mean? So that was like, I had a lot of little things like that where I felt that, yes, I'm honest, but I can't show this. I can't, not show, I can't admit certain things. I have a perfectly Instagrammable life. Uh, I'm married, I have business, I live, um, I have two children. I, I travel the world. I enjoy my work Uh You know, I do whatever I like. So I have a very uh, inspirational or inspiring life. And yet, how dare I to feel not Mm. very happy and content? And these little things were the red flags that uh, made me ask what's going on. And at some point, I realized that I had gotten lost. It's not that I didn't know who I was or what my values were, but I got lost. And when you get lost, you sometimes start panicking and you get lost more and more. Yeah. So that that was probably the beginning of the journey. I just wanted to figure out what's going on. I can't say that I'm, you know, I'm spotlessly happy right now. I have my concerns and fears, but at least I'm at peace with myself. Mm. I don't want to run away. I don't want to be anywhere else. I'm happy where I am. And yes, sometimes I'm happy to explore new things and to be ambitious and, you know, go to new places. But I don't do that from trying to run away from my pain.
0: Yeah, yeah, I love that you brought the theme of peace into the discussion. I think this has a lot a lot to do with our next topic. So I'm going to transition to perfectionism, a big theme in your book and and also I would say in your life, you know, having been born in the former Soviet Union. So how did perfectionism kind of materialize in your life? When did you realize, you know, that that came to the forefront?
1: Well, it was uh, the default regime for me because uh, I am the only child of my parents and contrary to popular belief, (laughs) there is one possible scenario for for lonely children is that you take the whole responsibility of making it in your family. You can't disappoint your parents. There's no other sibling to be the good one and you can be the rebellious one. So that was a huge burden for me. Uh, Also, Soviet Union was a very idealistic society. I studied, I was a straight A student all my life. Uh, So I studied really well. I behaved well and I was the good girl. uh, And and good girl comes very often with this need to do things perfectly and need to be right. Now, I think uh, my journey with perfectionist started when when I realized that it's not, an, uh, it's, not um, it's not, a requirement or prerequisite for being a good person. <laughs> just that, good person, because we want to be good people. And whether we uh, admit it or not, and for men, perfectionism just shows in a very different form. Women use the word perfectionist. Men use the word strong man, leader, successful. This is also about perfection to a great degree. You don't allow weaknesses. So uh, when I realized that I don't need to be perfect to be a good human being, uh, that's, I guess, when this dance started. It was a long time ago. And about 10 years, uh, or maybe more ago, I heard this wonderful phrase from one of my friends. He said, I'm a recovering perfectionist. And I was like, yes, I'm a recovering perfectionist. And I, I love this phrase. And I used it until I was about 40. And I realized that I can't recover from being myself. I cannot recover from being perfectionist. It's part of me. So the question is not whether I can recover from it or I can eradicate it. The question is, how how can I come to terms with it and live with it so that it doesn't prevent me from doing things?
0: Yeah. Okay, walk us through maybe some some of the steps that help us to break away from that, you know, from, from living that perfect picture of, of ourselves that really doesn't exist.
1: It's, uh, you know, it's a little unfair to to uh, give the answer to this question in a short yeah. form, mostly because it is a journey. Usually, you know, in the psychology, they have this uh, interesting um, concept that if uh, some some problem, uh, let's say, or some trauma took you a certain amount of time to, to happen or to create this problem, you require at least half that time to, <laughs> to undo yeah. it. So if you've been perfectionist, let's say, for 40 years, it's quite natural to expect that you're not going to change just on the spot. It will take some practice just because of the way our brain works. you know those neuro, neural pathways do require some time to, to change, of course. <laughs> so uh, so I guess um, I guess we have to start with challenging uh, a lot of the um, paradigms which uh, we hold dear, like the mm-hmm. paradigm of success what does it mean we know conceptually that failure doesn't uh, is not contradictory of success failure is something that success the road to success is paved with yet if you ask people how many times do we get paralyzed or we stall because we are afraid to fail or to be less than perfect. So in theory, we kind of understand, but do we really want, you know, I used to go horseback riding until I fell so many times that I started being afraid. You Mm. can't ride a horse if you're afraid to fall off it. You just can't. So uh, let's. I, I guess the easiest way, and I will not go deeper because there are so many um, facets and layers to to living with perfectionism Because it's not just um, just recognizing that you have it, uh, but actually being functional with it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, so the first the first one would be just just uh, re uh, reconceptualize what failure means to you. Yeah, or imperfection. Try to live with that,
0: yeah, it's really gosh, the more I think about it it is um you know people we talk about the the studies on growth mindset versus fixed mindset, right uh, I think that's Angela Duckworth's work and uh it's it's orienting yourself always constantly to self-awareness to challenging your assumptions to just kind of maybe even stepping a stepping back from what what your worldview is at that moment, when you try to impose it on other people, it's like, okay, hold on a second. Let me pause and think this through. Right. Because it's always when we live in, in the script scripting, like you said, if you've lived in the scripting in your mind for 40 years, there's no flip of the switch. It is a constant, Kind of challenging of your worldview, challenging of, of that, that that kind of mindset that that you've existed for so long. And I think that's like just chipping away and chipping away at it. Um, and and I think it's conversations that have a lot to do with it when you sit down in a in a group of people, right and uh, and you try to uh force your world opinion on others to me I wonder how much that those interactions have to do with those points along your journey where you become less or have a less tendency to become perfectionistic, right? The more you sit down with people and activate your curiosity, right? <laughs> the more you sit down another with another person two days later and say, I'm gonna just choose to listen today and not speak. Right. <laughs> Uh, Are those the things that you're talking about that kind of lend to us along the journey to finally arrive at a point where, okay, I'm not being labeled a perfectionist?
1: So, um, I'm not afraid of being labeled a perfectionist. As I said, I still am, and I think I will die a perfectionist. Okay. Uh, I just know how to live with that. Uh, Sorry for maybe a crude example, but in this world built for men, I'm a woman. And it may be a handicap and it would have been easier for me to achieve certain things if I was a man, but you just live with what you've got. And perfectionism, and I know it's not very fair comparison because uh, gender is something which, well, nowadays you can change gender as well, but um, it's, you know, sorry for a a maybe misapplied quote, but it's Gandalf who said um, to Frodo, when Frodo said, why do I have to do that? He said, we don't always get to choose the time and we live but we always get to choose what we do with the time that is given to us mm-hmm. so you don't always get to choose your dragons but you get to choose are you going to make them your curse or your blessing so perfectionism is something which i have and as i said i can't i, I can't eradicate a part of me uh, it's, uh, it's like amputation, you know? So I just, I, I, I just need to learn how to live with that. Now, when it comes to the conversations and the, the, the book journey, the book journey is actually, as I said, it's, uh, it's the journey back to understanding yourself and to knowing yourself. So it's, I'm not following my own path because, uh, I'm quite aware that my own journey is my own journey. And, you know, maybe some people would find it interesting to read, but I didn't want to write a book about myself. It's not a book about me, not even about my experience, but it's inspired by my experience. And sometimes I use my life as an illustration, but this is, this book is the reader's journey. The moment mm-hmm. somebody picks up the book, it's their journey. And how they're going to walk that journey depends on their circumstances, on their uh, worldview right now, on their experiences. And for some people, it's about perfectionism. For other people, it's the reverse of that. I, uh, you know, when I, uh, started publicizing the book, I realized there were different types of people and very similar to perfectionist is this underdog type, the type that is actually pretty good with failure and with, uh, you know, with imperfection, but they have issues with their self-worth you mentioned it a little bit, you know, the imposter syndrome. I, I You know, I sometimes uh, uh, struggle with both the imposter syndrome and also the question, why am I not as famous as I should be? Hmm. Why is this person having like three million followers when they say such tried, boring stuff? So um, what kind of dragons uh, the reader is going to uh, encounter while reading the book? I have no idea. There are so many people out there in the world, and uh, every journey is unique. Yeah. Um, the important thing is, uh, uh, and, and this is what's common to each journey, is learning to be honest with yourself. And honesty starts with a very simple realization, I may be wrong.
0: Yeah.
1: Any time of the day, I may be wrong. And that is actually such a liberating idea. I may be wrong because the moment, you know, you mentioned this uh, growth mindset. I think growth mindset with just starts with that just the simple acknowledgement any time of the day. I may be wrong. Yeah. Then uh, we talk about kindness and, and courage and all these things. But in essence, authenticity is about your relationship with yourself, and any relationship starts with with honesty with with being clear who you're dealing with with commitment with kindness yeah. with love
0: oh that's so good so i want to talk about hustle culture you know those those darling billionaires the tech founders that that we read about not all of them but some of them they model hustle culture you know to them it's a badge of honor and status symbol maybe you know to put in 16 18 hours a day in the name of productivity and results and scaling our business right and then other people learn that it's a cultural expectation some may even mandate it as a as an expectation of 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 the job so let's get into this mindset of um first how how hustle culture became so prevalent in western society but what have you seen i mean coming from the East, you know, Eastern Europe. What, do you, what have you seen here in America that gets people sucked into this hustle culture?
1: Well, in the uh, Soviet days, we also hustled, but in a different way. It was a socialist uh, country. So if you chose not to, the state would still take care of you. but uh, and I'm not a sociologist, so, of course, I don't know the background of how how this evolved. But I think mm-hmm. it has a lot to do with a very simple idea that we hold dear that uh, success requires hard work, sweat, blood, and sacrifices and almost every story that you uh see in popular culture or in uh, in classical literature for example even uh it all talks about how we have to struggle through a lot of challenges and and um Predicaments to achieve success, and if uh, if we don't um, suffer, if there's no resistance, then we feel that something is wrong. Either this is not success, we are phonies, we are imposters, or it's not going to be sustainable. This is just the uh, belief system that a lot of us subscribe to because this is the prevalent idea which you can see everywhere. It might be, you know. Uh, you, you've heard about marketing, of course, and it might be all down to just what sells. You know, If you were watching a movie about somebody enjoying their work, loving it and doing it effortlessly, it would probably not make much of a movie, but there are a lot of success examples like that where people do the right thing and they love what they do and they succeed and they never see it as a sacrifice or hard work or sweat and blood. They just do what they love. Uh, but they would make really boring plots lines for movies and books, right? Uh, That's one side. The other side is, uh, because it's such a prevalent idea. Actually, before I go into that, uh, why why it's important, uh, an analogy would be when you go to the gym, if you want to exercise, you put certain weights on the machines in the gym, and when you're done with your training, if your uh, muscles don't burn, you feel that you haven't done enough exercise, so you're not benefiting from it. So the next time when you go, go, you'll obviously increase the weight so that your muscles burn, because we we understand that this resistance, this burning sensation is the positive sign that means that your body is getting benefits from the exercise. So Uh, sacrifices, hustle, uh, you know, hard work, it's the resistance, which we equate to the results. And if we don't feel it, we think that the results are not following.
0: So we do more of it. Mm -hmm.
1: Very often we create resistance. There is even such a funny phenomenon as active procrastination. It comes from a very old research from the beginning of the 20th century, you know, the uh, uh, Dotson-Yorks, this um, curve about- The bell curve stress and um, and performance. So a lot of people believe in that uh, to the point where they they just start sabotaging themselves if they don't feel that burn, the resistance, the, the pain, the, the sacrifice, the sweat and the blood and so on. Now, the other side of it is that we feel guilty if we don't do that. And I do that too. I'm a very leisurely person. So if I'm reading a book and somebody's passing by, I try to make a much more serious face just in case, what if they judge me lazy because <laughs> I'm reading a book in the middle of the day? Um, so it does help when you read Plato. do not you too But that jokes aside, uh, jokes aside, uh, you know we very often make a show also of how busy we are. Now the difference, and I know quite a few billionaires personally, and I've visited them, uh, and. Uh, I'm not throwing people under the train, I know, but for example, Branson spends a lot of time with his family doing sports, enjoying himself. Uh, Our very dear friend who lives uh, right next to him on the private island also spends at least a few hours every day just walking. So, you know, and I know the difference between this 18 hour days, working days versus you live your life, you live your day, but your business is always on your mind. And you can't switch it off. But that's about passion. That's not about hustle. You you know if you have a you, if you have a relationship issue, if you have uh, had a fight with a friend, you're not actively spending time mending that relationship. But it's on the back of your mind, and that's what we sometimes misunderstand. Yes, very. Uh, some passionate people ask uh, do keep their business on their mind uh, twenty four hours a day, but that doesn't mean that they hustle uh, and grind themselves to the grave. Not at mm. all.
0: So maybe we need to get, we need to let some of these uh, billionaire tech founders off the hook because they they do come from a place of passion um I believe uh changing the world I mean you know look at what Mr Musk is doing and how how much the media just crucifies him for his supposed hustling um but would you say Elon is promoting a hustle culture or is he just bringing people to to work what to work with passion,
1: I wouldn't uh, dare to probably comment on Elon Musk because I'm not interested enough. I mean, of course, I know all the news, but I'm not interested yeah. enough to go deep into articles about him and mm-hmm. you know form my own opinion. But I would say that nobody is promoting, well, maybe except Gary Vaynerchuk. Nobody is really promoting hustle culture because uh, billionaire type people they just do what they do yeah. and how they know uh, and how they do it and and. Uh, I'll return to uh, Richard Branson because he's uh, the person I know personally. He in fact doesn't like to teach too much. He does interviews very well. Uh, you ask him questions and he'll answer the question. But he doesn't teach because what he does is not a conscious choice in the sense that his, uh, his patterns of behavior around business are not something is not something which he designed. That's just how he is. And I would venture to guess that Elon Musk is just the way he is and Steve Jobs was just the way he was. But we are very different, and it doesn't mean that we all have to be like them. There are plenty of people who create huge things, meaningful things, uh, have a lot of money, but their way is different. There are a lot of, uh, I'm sorry to use that word, but lazy people who have actually left a mark in the humanity because, and again, I will misapply this principle, but b- because there's no research directly to that, but think of the Pareto principle. Only 20% of your actions brings 80% of your results. Right. A lot of our actions is show, is the show we put on to make ourselves feel better and occasionally for others to to think better of us.
0: Mm. Yeah. Wow. So can I pull a concept from your book that uh, I thought was kind of cool. You know, I grew up in Southern California with the surfing culture. And you talk about surfing as an antidote to hustling. What is surfing and why is it better for us?
1: So you you could equate it to flow, uh, and flow theory is actually quite popularized. There's quite a lot of contemporary research on that. So you can go into that, and there will be some numbers. <laughs> but in my case, I wanted the a, a slightly different analogy because you know hustling is like being a hamster in a wheel. Uh, there's a lot of uh, movement of those little paws. That yeah, that's <laughs> good. It stays in the place. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Maybe that's uh, the point of hustling, so that the wheel stays in place. I think hustling is the um, maintaining quote, the maintaining status quo, uh, uh, mode, or maybe, or maybe the executive mode, you know, you execute things as a hustler. But creation usually happens in a very different regime because creation requires, uh, some, uh, well, inspiration requires uh, vacuum, right? It, uh, because if inspiration comes from somewhere outside, it it can't it can't uh, come into a filled space. So uh, that's why I call another regime surfing because that's the easiest analogy. A surfer is this little dot somewhere in the sea, waiting for the wave. When the wave comes, the surfer jumps on the board and makes it to the coast on the on top of the wave and it's it's fast, it's exciting, exhilarating, it's efficient and you still reach the shore or you can swim to the shore. So I believe that uh, especially for entrepreneurs we entrepreneurs tend to slide into hustling because this is understandable. you know we understand this is the uh, this logical mind that explains to you the I'm sorry for the language as ours. I know how to put ass hours, but I sometimes don't understand how to put inspiration and genius. That's why I'd rather do the ass hours and spend all that time and do the, the, the work because then I at least I'll feel I've done my best. Because waiting for the wave and riding the wave is just so scary. It's it's inexplicable. But that's that's the difference between our logical side and our inspired side. Inspiration cannot be explained with logic, and the best, the best comparison is surfing the wave.
0: Yeah. Okay, uh, I, I want to make a big transition, but I want to make sure that, is there anything else we should know about hustle culture? Because the transition is going to be a big one.
1: I, I, you know, I actually wonder, this uh, this all comes from the first part of my book, and I think this is just so relevant uh, to so many people, and this is this little hook that allows people to get interested. But I actually don't research that so much. I'm much more into uh, into the inner world of the people, and if hustling is what you like to do, then good. If you're happy, if you're – or the only problem with hustling is that very often – We do that to run away from bigger problems, which are just inexplicable and hard to solve. Wow.
0: Okay. That is profound. Okay. (laughs) Vulnerability. Here we go. (laughs) Another big trendy word like authenticity, you know, these days. Um, And thank you, Brene Brown, for making it almost like a household name, right? So, you're a supporter of vulnerability, but you also caution against the dark side of vulnerability, which I don't think many of us understand. So, you label it vulnerability tyranny. Break it down for us.
1: So, uh, yeah, uh, thanks for mentioning Brene Brown because she's, she's also being a big uh, proponent of vulnerability. She also says that, you know, too much of vulnerability is actually not it. But, uh, you know, I would, I would actually say that, yes, I think that vulnerability is important and good, and I am proponent of it. But to the same level as I would say, you know, um, ibuprofen is good if you have pain. The problem is that we are, for our society, vulnerability is the dose of medicine that we have to take because we we have forgotten um, the true face of ours uh, behind the polished facades that we put up. So uh, today I had a mess up in plans and this is the first time in life that I'm showing up at an interview without makeup. It's a historical moment
0: (laughs) as if I could tell
1: it was a hard choice for me to do, but I thought it's important to, uh, you know, it's important to be uh, there emotionally and cognitively. And I will sacrifice that little facade for the sake of being ready to do the interview rather than, you know, fidgeting about uh, less important things. So, I kinda understand that we need facades because that makes us feel better about ourselves, but the problem is that we forget who we are behind that facade. Now, vulnerability is the medicine that we as a society should take, but it is as as far as it goes. Uh, And I don't think that is a solution for everything because vulnerability in essence means you have to put yourself in the situation where you are uh, a little bit helpless, or you are at the mercy of others right is it absolutely necessary well we are at the mercy of people when we fly the plane for example <laughs> or, or other situations but is it absolutely necessary for an uh, authentic fulfilled happy life i do not know i think if you if you've reached the point of honesty with yourself you can uh, you can choose to use vulnerability in those circumstances where it is absolutely necessary do i need to be vulnerable with people in my team well, if we are messing up and they're looking up to me, maybe I I do. But just for the sake of being vulnerable because this is fashionable? Maybe what you, you know, we have to we have to choose our measures based on our circumstances. Like you wouldn't pop ibuprofen if uh, I don't know, you have indigestion, but you would do that if you have a headache, right? So vulnerability is just one of those medicines which we sometimes have to take, but it's not—it's uh, it's not something that you need on a daily basis. And I know I'm saying something so horrible, and a lot of people will hate me for that.
0: <laughs> well, I think it's important to distinguish between you know what what vulnerability is and what it's not, especially in a in a you know in the I guess I hate to say the word transactional in the transactional um way of conducting business day to day because you know sometimes that's what that's what it is and we want to break down those walls but it doesn't give you license to say share your deepest darkest secrets you know in in public or in front of a team and and so uh, to me it's 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 not you know it's not if you're coming from a traumatic life event or or a life of trauma there are places, tell me if you're tracking with this. There are places to go to, to express those kind of intensely painful emotions. And I wouldn't say that the workplace is the right environment for that. We can certainly support people and point them in the right direction. I just don't know if in the course of the business day, you want to you open up that much of a window for people to jump through, right? So I don't know. What are your thoughts on that?
1: You know, thank you for for feeding me my own food. <laughs> we should have started with the definition. <laughs> You're right. So uh, the definition of vulnerability if, is um, is uh, taking a brave action without knowing uh, how it's going to be perceived or without knowing the consequences, right? So it's it's uh, courage in the face of uncertainty. Mm. So that's uh, uh, the the uh, well currently accept a definition of vulnerability. Now, you mentioned breaking down the walls. Um, you know, we're sometimes so self-obsessed that we think that the only way to break down the walls is just let me share a story about you and then maybe you're going to be so inspired that you'll share your story. You know, sometimes I put up posts about the things that I'm afraid. And you, of course, some people will say like, oh, thank you because I'm also afraid of the same things or or something like that. But it's not it's not the only way to break down the walls. Imagine you are having a meeting or a conversation, let's say with your colleagues, sometimes breaking down the walls is just being there, not judging, being kind, being understanding, listening, hearing. Mm. This can also break down the walls. It has nothing to do with you being vulnerable, but it's sometimes more practical in, uh, in 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 relationships with other people. Now, the problem that we uh, currently have is that because the vulnerability um, has become such a buzzword, um, the very striking example is when somebody comes up on stage and shares something so touching, something so painful, and everybody's in tears and snot, and, and everybody's like, oh my God, we are so vulnerable, and we feel so connected, so human. Right. But that's an extreme example. You can be vulnerable uh, in the situations where you're not sharing anything about yourself. You know, if, you, uh, if you're if you trying to make friends in the new place and you, you approach someone and try to be nice to them, that's also making you vulnerable. In my case, I like to make jokes and I'm not very good at joking. And very often, uh, my jokes end up being met with icy silence. And I have been vulnerable in that moment because I was trying to lift up the mood and what I got was misunderstanding. And I shared nothing about myself personally. So it's very important to understand. Now, as a speaker, I have stories about my life, of course, which I share. I don't share everything, naturally, because I'm a very private person. But I have stories about my life, about my mistakes, about my uh, hard moments, which I share from stage. But I've shared them from stage several times. And I know exactly what reactions they are going to elicit in my audience. Yeah, When I share that story, even if a tear comes to my eye, It doesn't make me vulnerable because I do that as a means of driving a point. I know the outcome exactly.
0: That's it. That's it right there. So, for people that are going, that may be thinking, Marcel, you're going against what you preach, I just want to be clear that it's, I'm not encouraging sharing of painful and traumatic events to be a cultural or social norm in the day to day of work. But I have seen. Play, uh, it's situations where somebody shares something uh, out of a vulnerable space and other people are so touched by it that it brings people together. And like you said, those are special occasions that we have to treasure um, and, and, and not discourage people from, from, from doing that. I mean, yeah. And, and so it's, it's, when, it's when the work environment becomes an open space for therapy, that to me is we need them now to protect the workplace from becoming to from you know coming into to a meeting uh, and and circle the chairs and start to share like you're in a 12 step program okay
1: <laughs> well you know uh, there is also such a concept that uh, when people are too vulnerable or share too much that this is just an emotional dump very often that's the way people deal with their hard emotions. They just dump it all out because you know, if I let it all out, you can't you can't judge me anymore. And that's also the question is everything has to have a purpose and a reason. What, what are you trying to achieve with your communication? Yeah. If, you, if you're trying to achieve with your communication is feel better, then please be honest about it. You're just trying to make yourself feel better. Now, again, I've been in personal growth for 20 years, and I've seen speakers, the best speakers in the world. And trust me, I've seen speakers who share very personal stories on stage, shed a tear, and yet later they're afraid to admit that they don't know something or well, they may have been wrong with something. Now, sometimes admitting that you don't know the answer, or you're lost, is much more vulnerable than sharing a story that you, you know, yeah,
0: that so has nothing to do with work. <laughs> right. So, I'm going to bring this back to work, and I'm going to push back against the forces of hyper-masculinity. Okay, Christina, so… And, and here's, here's, here's what, what I see so often in my coaching sessions and my, you know, when I sit down with the executives is that lack of vulnerability because they think that it's the soft and warm fuzzy stuff that we've been talking about, um, you know, sharing and deep emotions and all that. But I call them to the carpet when I don't see them being emotionally honest mm. about those things in the face of us. You said it best. It is the willingness to do something courageous in the face of uncertainty, right? So how often do leaders sweep something under the rug because they are afraid of showing up by being emotionally honest, emotionally present about a situation that is going to affect other people in the workplace, you know, a customer pulling out of of, of an account, a project gone south, etc. Right? So yeah, in those moments is when vulnerability needs to to show up and that's when it's most effective i think is when things are uncertain and we don't know the way forward to mm. oh to stand in that vulnerable space with people and say here's what's going on
1: so we're touching upon the theory of ro- social roles mm. uh, and um I'll just I'll simplify it, of course. But different social roles uh, in society have a different set of characteristics. So we, as a society, tend to define the social role of a leader, a strong leader, with very masculine traits. And this is something which we've probably, uh, you know, ground into our subconscious over the centuries of uh, of uh, well, military leadership. As being one of the examples of the strong leadership. Uh, and that's that's probably uh, the aversion where, where the aversion for the so-called perceived weakness comes from. Now, when people are afraid to show um their weaknesses, and I'll just use the word weakness, it doesn't mean that they are like emotionally weak or hysterical or don't know wh- whichever whatever you consider as weakness. For a lot of people, for a lot of leaders, weakness means, you know, being lost, not knowing the answer, not being, you know, being disappointed, being depressed, actually, you know, being human. For a lot of leaders, that that is a weakness. So let's say weakness. Uh, I think uh, this uh, tendency to sweep weaknesses under the rug comes from misunderstanding the situation from a purely psychological point of view. We think that if we show our weakness, it's not a boxing match. You know where if an uh, opponent shows where their weaknesses, the uh, if I'm attacking you, I'm going to use your weakness to you know to uh, to floor you. It's not a boxing match. We sometimes misunderstanding that your team is your ally. Uh, sorry, I can't pronounce this. It's uh, English is my third language. <laughs> your supporters, <laughs> your team is your supporters. They are on your side. <laughs> so. Uh, and because of that, we think that showing weakness is actually something which is going to um, to, to um, make our position um, shaky. Now, uh, from a purely psychological point of view, if you're working with a team, if you're working with other people and you are really lost very often, rather than pretending that you know what you're doing and making people run in circles just to keep up the appearances that I have everything under control – It's much more productive to acknowledge that I am at a loss. Let's decide what we do together. But, you know, it has nothing to do with the masculinity and femininity. It just has to do with having clear mind and understanding the dynamics between people. It just happens so that women tend to be naturally a little bit more attuned to relationships with other people. So we say that this is a feminine quality. But actually, if you just understand psychology to a degree, you would see that acknowledging mistakes, acknowledging that you are lost, you don't know where to go, or that you are demotivated, is not a weakness. It's just stating the obvious. You know, when the uh when the doctor sees the patient uh with a broken bone, unless the doctor says the bone is broken, they don't know how to fix it. You can't you can't pretend that, oh, but the arm is intact, everything is going to be fine. So, you know, if you as a leader having a moment of weakness, not acknowledging that weakness, it's like ignoring the broken bone. Mm. Mm.
0: Yeah. All right. I want to another point of transition and, uh, and and bring in the the, the this idea of self love, and um, so I'm going to set it up like this. We you know we talk a lot about self care, right? And uh, you know to to be able to care for yourself or or to care for others, you have to. Take care of yourself first. The whole the the imagery of you know pulling down the oxygen mask, put it on you first before the uh, the the person next to you, right? You call us to something else that's that goes beyond self care, and this is the whole concept of self love. Tell us about it.
1: Well, the mask is the self care, right? <laughs> yeah. So the very simple analogy would be uh, would be my phone. <laughs> Those who can see it. Uh, with my kids. So I, I like to say that I don't charge this device out of love for it. I charge it because if I don't, it will die. It will not work, right? And for me to be able to use it, I need to charge it. So self-care is, in essence, charging your device. (laughs) And self-love is a relationship. Now, why we confuse the two or why we uh, tend to do more self-care and less self-love is because the same same thing. Do you remember when we were talking about hustling culture? We understand the tangible stuff. We understand the effort, putting the hours into things or putting the time into things. Now, relationship is not ritualistic by nature. Uh, dating is uh, ritualistic, right? Uh, like you could date someone, but do you love them? You could date someone without loving them or you could love someone without dating them. So uh, now, <laughs> I know it's a funny analogy, but <laughs> dating is the ritual and love is the relationship. Now, self-care is a ritual. And because it's ritual, it's tangible, it's understandable, it's easy to put down in uh, in a list, to-do list, for example, or check-off list. Relationship is it's not even a feeling. It's a complex connection, <laughs> complex, uh, elusive collection, connection, which is really hard sometimes to even describe and explain. Um, now, another analogy that I like to make is that when a child is born, let's say a stereotypical rich child in a very affluent uh, family uh, who has everything, good clothes, good, good house, good school, uh, good food, nannies, teachers, everything. But if but we all understand if that child doesn't get the love, the love, if not of parents, then at least of, of the caretakers, this child is never going to grow up into a healthy, happy, uh, fulfilled human being because taking care of your needs is not enough. Now, that's the big difference. And the problem is because we don't know how self-love looks We're afraid of it. We don't understand it. We confuse self-love with self-care. We confuse self-love with selfishness, with being Mm -hmm. self-obsessed. We confuse self-love with indulgence, complacency. So we're afraid of it. We don't know how it looks. So that's why we uh, do the simple thing, the rituals, which makes us feel a little better.
0: Can you give us some examples of the rituals?
1: Well, uh, meditate, go out for a walk, take a shower, have a bath. Yeah, This is a very good care of your body. And some, some of those rituals might make you feel a little better emotionally, but self-love is when you wake up depressed, you don't take a shower, you don't meditate, you don't go on a walk, but you don't hate yourself for that. You recognize your humanity. You recognize that you're having a problem. You are committed enough to actually deal with that problem and not, you know, um, eat yourself up for, for, for not taking care of yourself. Yeah. I know it's a slippery slope.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to bring us to a slow kind of close, but I want to make sure that uh, there's a couple of stones I want to turn. One is, what's your definition of success?
1: Oh, I'll be very boring. Success is uh, being the best in the world in something not maybe in the world, but one of the best, let's say, on top, uh, whether it's you, in your professional career or, or, or money, and I like to keep it at that.
0: Okay. And yeah. I
1: know there are a lot of questions, but uh, uh, and I'll probably go a little bit ahead and answer uh, the biggest objection, how about happiness and fulfillment? That's about happiness and fulfillment. It's not about success. And, yes, success without happiness is probably useless and probably not going to make you happy, obviously. <laughs> but by... Clash, clashing and colliding all the um, all the um, concepts, we are doing disservice both to success and to happiness and fulfillment. I'd like to keep them separate because I think what we lack as a society is a serious conversation about happiness and fulfillment.
0: Mm.
1: Let's not lump it under success.
0: Yeah. Do you have that that kind of that one line statement that defines living a flossom life? If you were to boil down this whole conversation to the bottom line, how do we live a flossom life?
1: Uh, It's a little it's a little twist to one quote that I heard. Uh, So I'll 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 give the original. Happy are those people who are on a detour and can still enjoy the scenery.
0: Oh, okay, I like that.
1: that Is about. (laughs)
0: <laughs> very good very good well christina what what's your ultimate hope for for people reading this book
1: i i would like the people who read my book to come to peace with themselves okay. just that
0: yeah <laughs> it's funny that we kind of started on that on that we, you brought peace into the discussion and we're ending it with peace <laughs>
1: <laughs> maybe it's my characteristic of my age <laughs>
0: All right. As we uh, come down to the wire, I pose you the leadership love question. Mm-hmm. Uh no, This is personal to me. I believe love is, is sort of the solution to fear and uncertainty, to bridging our divides, right? And it's a very big umbrella term, of course. But I, I always like to ask my guests uh, when it comes down to, say, human relationships, whether it's one-on-one or one-on-group or bringing that organizationally as a as a cultural systemic value, right? How do we lead our businesses, our employees with more practical and actionable love day in and day out?
1: So I'll have to take a little step back before I answer this question. I believe that your relationship with the world is a reflection of your relationship with yourself. Hmm. so if you learn to be kind. Uh, patient loving understanding with yourself it's much easier to be so with other people so i would bring it back uh how do you bring more love into your work environment or any environment for that matter bring more love into your relationship with yourself that's great
0: okay all right well we bring it home with two final questions here they are personally what's really tugging at your heart right now that you'd like us to know
1: so talking about vulnerability, <laughs> these are two two questions in one. What's tugging on my heart, and what I would like you to know, <laughs> and they might not be the same. <laughs> 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 so with that said, uh, you know I have another big uh, passion project. I uh, I have become a hobby farmer recently, and I'm restoring my ancestral home of 400 years to become a museum. And that's uh, one thing that takes a lot of my time and a lot of my passion.
0: That's great. That's great. I'm going to put that in the show notes for sure. All right. (laughs) And finally, hey, you close us out. What's that one thing that we can take away with us to to help our lives become flossom?
1: So I'll uh, I'll quote Cinderella's mama, uh, mama, mother. (laughs) It's one of my favorite quotes in personal growth from a movie, Cinderella. So she said, have courage and be kind.
0: Christina, you are smart, but more importantly, you are wise and and we are all blessed by this conversation. I have no doubt. So I really appreciate you coming on today.
1: Thank you so much for having me. And it was a very, very pleasant pleasant conversation. Thank you.
0: I'm glad you thought so. All right, point us to a few places. Where can people find you? Where can they go to connect with you?
1: So I, I believe my book is still in the bookshops in US. I hope so, <laughs> and uh, so you'll find them there. Uh, but other than that, of course, Mine Valley. I'm a co-founder of Mine Valley, so of course I'll I'll invite you to my <laughs> to, to, to my baby.
0: <laughs> Sounds good. Well, you can keep this conversation going on social media with hashtag Love in Action podcast. And like I said, look for my show notes. I'm going to include everything in there. How to get a hold of Christina and all her websites and a YouTube link to watch the show on my website. And you can go to marcellschwantes.com to find that. And finally, if you're interested in sponsoring an episode of the show, let's chat. Reach me on my website or find me on LinkedIn. See you next time. Thank you for listening to the Love and Action podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please share it, subscribe, and leave us a review. Until next time, don't forget, the future of leadership is love in action. Believe it, practice it, and watch your business grow.